This is Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. My name is Dennis Money. My co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda and his latest book, uh, The Life of Yogananda, now available. Uh, our guest today, Dr. Connie Zweig. She is the founder of the Center for Shadow Work and Spiritual Counseling. Uh, it is a unique counselor with a extensive private practice that includes global and individual and marriage counseling and all other areas. Uh, Connie, I should say, is a friend of Phil's and a friend of mine for many years, and she does brilliant work, and we're very happy to have her on the show today. Connie, thank you so very much for taking the time. Thank you both for having me. So, Connie, um, we go back, the three of us, 40 or so years to the early days of our spiritual paths. Somewhere along the line, you wrote some important books about the shadow, what we call the shadow and shadow work. And um, tell us two things. What, what we mean by shadow, because it's a common expression now, and um, how you came to that work. Okay. Um, the shadow was a term that Jung coined to refer, to refer to the personal unconscious. But if we think about it metaphorically, it's like a dark room in which our images and our dreams lie dormant. And shadow work is the process of bringing them to life. So it's the process of looking into the closet of our minds where we've hidden and banished all kinds of um, feelings, wishes, longings that are, that are forbidden by the ego, that are deemed by the ego to be inappropriate or impolite or unkind. And it's all stashed away there. And at certain points, at certain moments in our lives, the shadow erupts. So we've all noticed that there's a part of us that might erupt in a critical comment and then we feel embarrassed or in some kind of inappropriate action like lying or cheating and then we feel ashamed or guilty. We've all noticed that we have these parts of ourselves but we don't quite know what to make of them. And um what I've discovered in really looking at this over these past few decades now is that there's a lot of information, self-knowledge, even intelligence in those parts of ourselves that act out in those hurtful or self-destructive ways. And let me also add that <coughs> there are a lot of sort of, quote, positive things in the shadow. So, for mm -hmm. example... Many of us have to um, earn a living, build a career, make a family, and during that time, we have to bury some of our creative dreams and aspirations. Phil, I know you've been wanting to write a novel for a very long time. Most people have some kind of a creative, a lost creative fantasy, and that too is buried in the shadow, and I call that the gold in the dark side. Also, in our spiritual lives, which is really the focus of your podcast, we often banish to the shadow um, our own spiritual authority, our own light, 
our own potential, divine potential, we could say, our higher self. And then what happens is we give it away to a teacher. We give it, a, we project it, we unconsciously attribute it to somebody we believe to be more evolved, more wise than we are. And so that too can go into the shadow. So there's this sense that almost anything about us can be repressed into the darkness and almost anything about us can be lived out, right, by the ego's story. And they kind of develop in tandem with each other. Something gets expressed and something else as a result gets repressed into the shadow. Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, uh, about the second part of my question, I'm curious how you came to the, this emphasis in your work and what was it about shadow work that attracted you as a professional as, and uh, how did it affect your own spiritual development? So... We were all in the TM movement together, the three of us. And I spent about a decade doing a lot of meditation practice. And there was a slow process of disillusionment that happened for me in the community and with Maharishi. And as that took place, kind of gradually inside of me, I became disheartened. Um, Not so much with the knowledge, which I thought was extraordinary. Not so much with the promise, but with the reality, the human reality Mm -hmm. of what was you know, what was going on around me. And it was, I struggled to try to make sense of that. And, Um, when I moved back to Los Angeles, I began to work as a journalist and eventually moved into publishing. And I was, at the time, studying Carl Jung and depth psychology, and I decided to publish this anthology of writings about the shadow. It was called Meeting the Shadow. And... To my surprise, it took off. It was a big hit, and I discovered that there was a big need um, in the collective to understand the complexity of human nature. Mm -hmm. And my longing for the light, which really kind of drove my life in my 20s, then kind of turned and became a longing for the dark a longing to understand the depths of the human soul rather than the heights of our spiritual potential. And I never stopped doing spiritual practice and I never stopped exploring our higher possibilities, but I began to ground myself in psychology. I went to graduate school, got my doctorate in depth psychology, and began to understand the complexity much more of my own journey and other people's journey. Because so many of us baby boomers, you know, we explored spirituality before we established ourselves in the world. Right. So we didn't have a foundation. We didn't have an emotional Mm -hmm. or financial 
foundation for some of the really transcendent experiences that we were having. Right. So my my search became about how to integrate all that. Right. How to how to build how to join psychology and spirituality in a much bigger vision in the way that so many thinkers have done now, you yeah. know? Right. Let, let me ask and, you, I, I wanted to ask you, Connie, to interject here. Uh, this is fascinating for me because I was in clinical psychology and actually the person that influenced me most was Carl Jung. And then I got involved in meditation and spirituality. And I kind of, even though I, I, I continued to enjoy and thought it was profound what I was discovering in psychology, I sort of abandoned that went full force into spiritual path. And I, and I think it would have been much better to integrate the two, which I was totally incapable of doing at the time. And, and uh, But I'm wondering now, when you uh, talk about uh, the shadow and, and how that affects and influences people, when, you, when somebody comes in for therapy and probably no two people are alike, and the procedure might be different from person to person, but just generally speaking, how important is it for the person to discover and know what's their shadow and what the content and cause of it is, and then uh, what technique, what um, tools do you use to have a person, uh, uh, and I assume this is what you want to do, take that dark side uh, and uh, use it to allow the person to grow in their potential or move in uh, what I guess I would call a positive direction? Big question, Dennis. So, um, <laughs> well, I, I only expect big answers, so it's good. Go ahead. Right. No. So, you know, Freud and Jung, who really started psychoanalysis mm-hmm. only a hundred years ago, um, primarily worked with dreams mm-hmm. in order to make a connection to the unconscious. They then developed a free association method, which you probably have, which is a spontaneous speech that can be full of surprises when you speak without filtering. So what, so many, many, you know, since then, psychology has traveled far, um, but today it's really left behind this orientation to the unconscious. It's just not what the field is about anymore. Mm-hmm. There are a few private psychoanalytic institutes, um, but most of the graduate schools are no longer teaching an orientation to the shadow or to the unconscious. So there's, there's very, it's all about the brain now and behavior. So, <clears throat> which for me is tragic. Mm-hmm. So, um, in collaboration with my really dear friend, Steve Wolf, who's also a psychologist, we created a method for working with the shadow, and that's what the book Romancing the Shadow is about. And the method, in brief, goes like this. Um, we notice some kind of self-destructive pattern and that's creating suffering in our lives. Um, It could be a repetitive relationship pattern. It could be an addiction. It could be a depression. It could be um, a compulsion, some kind of a behavioral pattern that we can't control. It's some kind of... um, 
energy that takes us over, that feels bigger than us, and we can't control it for a moment, and it erupts in some way, and we're shocked, and we're ashamed, and we're guilty, and then it recedes again. And we have terrible suffering because this pattern repeats itself. So it could be cheating in a relationship. It could be overeating. It could be... um, uh, It could be, I can't meditate. I resist. I know I should meditate or go to yoga, but I resist. It could be... um, We can't do what's good for us or we do something that's not good for us. So this brings people into into therapy. And what we do in our method is we help people to identify three cues that this particular energy is coming up from the unconscious. And the first cue is the inner dialogue. So what am I saying to myself every time this happens? And we find that it's always the same thing. I always say to myself, I'm feeling anxious, or I'm empty, I feel empty, or nothing matters, or I can't control it, or I'm bad, I'm, I'm a victim. And it's always the same internal dialogue. So then they have one cue that this is about to happen. And they connect that cue to emotionally. What are the feelings that are going on with that inner dialogue? And then to the body. What are the physical sensations? Mm -hmm. So they have mental, emotional, and physical cues. Now we have them imagine that those are three dimensions of an internal figure, which we call a shadow character, coming up in that moment. So let's give that character a name and an image. It's a victim, and she's on her knees begging for help. Or it's a a tyrant, and he's got a whip in his hands. Or it's a food addict, and she's got cake in her mouth again. So now they have an image that they can relate to as a third thing. It takes it out of right. their minds, and they can observe it. Mm-hmm. They, they can look at it when it comes up, and they can catch one of those cues. Some people are kind of oriented to catch the inner dialogue. Some people are more body-centered, and they can catch the physical, you know, my solar plexus is queasy, my shoulders are tight. Some people can catch the emotional cue. Um, I'm starting to get sad. I'm starting to feel helpless. And then they know that that shadow character is around. They go, okay, here it is. Here's the victim. I'm about to go down that road. And what are the consequences if I let the victim take control in this moment? And they can see again and again, it's the same consequences. Now, how is this connected to spiritual practice? Because this is not psychology in the conventional sense of managing the ego. Now we're going to use our willpower to control this. This is not what we're doing with shadow work. What we're doing is linking 
this powerful unconscious process to the spiritual practice that allows us to center in the higher self, center in spirit, center in presence, whatever we call it, center in our divine nature. Uh, The name doesn't matter to me. But if we can begin to meditate and center or do martial arts and center or do um, what breath work and center, do yoga practice and center, then we have a way to sit inside ourselves and begin to observe that shadow character coming up. Then... Even if we just have a nanosecond, we have a moment in which to catch it and we can choose to behave differently rather than being, you know, our old word overshadowed. Mm -hmm. Rather than overshadowed by that energy, which is what typically happens for most people, instead we can observe it and catch it and do something. Well, this time I'm not going to eat the cake. This time I'm going to go out for a hike instead. And we begin to change our relationship to those powerful unconscious forces Mm -hmm. as they come up in our lives. Connie, do you find um, over the years, have you found um, a change in the spiritual uh, cohort of um, modern sort of seekers and practitioners in relationship to the kind of work you're doing. Uh, in other words, um, in my experience, and I'm sure yours, at least in the past, people would have found uh, what you do or the, the whole notion of, of working with a shadow uh, to be either threatening or they might uh, look down on it as turning away from the light or they might see it as risky or unnecessary. If you're on a spiritual path, you should always be, you know, focus on the, the positive and the light and all that. Do you find that, and has it changed over the years? Um, you know, it's hard to generalize, but I think most of us are more sophisticated now than when we were in our 20s. <laughs> I hope so. People have kind of recognized that, Meditation and yoga don't resolve our emotional issues. And, you know, Ken Wilber has a great word for this. He calls it spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. That we actually cannot transcend some of this emotional material. And that's what got me into this. I started to recognize the limitations of our spiritual practices. Not, Not to devalue them. Um, or dismiss them, but to include the ego's homework because that's so that's where the suffering is in people. And many of us thought we could skip that step initially. So, you know, transpersonal psychology came along in the 70s and a lot of those teachers tried to build the bridges between the ego's work, and spiritual practice. And this is kind of an extension of that. I mean, this is not, um, this doesn't come out of the blue, what Steve and I created. It's really a way to integrate uh, emotional development 
with spiritual evolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let me ask you, I uh, think, yeah, Connie, along those lines, I'm just curious now in terms of the therapy, uh, for yourself, do you need to see a therapist uh, and also those people that you do see at some point, are they given the tools so that uh, they are not uh, continually having to see a therapist? Because that was one of the concerns, I think, with psychotherapy was the dependence upon the psychotherapist over time. And I different, different schools uh, later on dealt with that in different ways. But do you give tools that people work on and then occasionally check in with the therapist? Or is each session uh, and continual sessions important? I think this is really individual. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people I work with maybe a half a dozen sessions and they have the practices they need for, for the rest of their lives. I have other people I've seen for 10 and 15 years because they've wanted a mentor. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've been, I've guided them through many, many dimensions of their lives. So it's really individual. It's not about creating dependency. Um, it's about their choice. And I'm retiring from my clinical practice in 30 days now. Mm -hmm. So some of these people are really looking at this question that you're asking, you know, what do they need now to separate from me and do their own work? That's a really important question. Mm -hmm. But that's a question that we also asked with our spiritual teachers, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, Because we became engaged with them because we were young. We became engaged and involved with them in a way that kind of recapitulated parent-child dynamics. Right. And that in psychotherapy, there are some schools, as you said, that want that to happen. We want people to become, to open up to those early parts of themselves. Um, and trust us with them, um, or the sort of natural unfolding of what we call the transference doesn't happen. So for some people, I've been the only good mommy they've ever had, Uh or the only good mentor they've ever had. And for other people, there isn't that projection. I don't carry that projection. Uh, They don't need that. So it's really individual. Mm Mm-hmm. Connie, is there, a, is there um, a collective or a national or a family shadow, or is it focused good question, on the individual? Yeah. yeah, there are many collective shadows. I mean, that was one of the places where, where Jung differentiated from Freud, where they had a lot of conflict, was that Jung came to believe that there is a collective unconscious. And that that was the source of the archetypes mm. that he spoke about. So there, in a family system, a small group of people, there can be a family shadow. So let's say, for example, it's a very the family presents a very proper um, moral religious persona, but inside they're cheating on their taxes or they're sexually abusing someone, right, inside the family group. Mm-hmm. There can be in subcultures, like let's say the subculture of um, a religious community or 
the subculture of um, um, any sort of kind of tribal small group can have its own persona and its own shadow issues. I mean, we found that in spiritual communities. Right. 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 There are shadow issues. Gee, you know, I just watched on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, we did too. I know where you're going. <laughs> Wasn't it great? You watched Oh yeah, yes. Rajneesh. Yeah, it was. It was uh, really well done. So, but by the way, Connie, I have to say, we interviewed the doctor, his personal physician. Phil and I interviewed him last year. But but I wish I had oh. watched a documentary before I interviewed him. We'd like to get him back on. <laughs> I, I I could have gone in a whole other. There was a lot more I know. Yeah. Now last year, fascinating. So there was a collective shadow in Osho's community because there was a kind of a trance that went on. Right. There was a kind of a blindness because there was so much projection and there was so much kind of giving up of critical thinking. Right. And well, so there's a shadow that right, forms. Right. Let, let, me, let me ask you this, Connie. This will, because we're running, we have about five minutes left and, I, and I'll turn it over to Phil. But I really want to ask this question along these lines. When we were involved in spiritual practice in a group, whether it's TM or any other group, there's always some goal. At the end, you're going to get in a higher state of consciousness. Or if it's a religious group, you're going to go to the, you know, the happy hunting ground or whatever it is. Do you think that goal, that uh, it can be counterproductive to somebody's uh, spiritual and, and just personal growth in life? Because they're, they're, they tend, what my experience is, is people tend to put off what's going on now because there's going to be this uh, bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow where you're, you're being promised something that, you know, may never be attainable. But it's it seems to be all encompassing and and just maybe distracting from other things you should be doing for your life. Um, <clears throat> I think many of us had the experience of postponing our human lives because the vision you know that we were given of enlightenment or awakening was so great, it was so alluring that I know for me, um, I know exactly what went into my shadow because of that. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, I didn't develop my capacity for emotional intimacy in my 20s because I thought I should be celibate. Mm -hmm. I didn't develop my capacity for a career in my 20s because I thought it was irrelevant. I mean, I sacrificed a lot for that dream. And when I kind of woke up from the dream, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to devalue, um, I believe there are people who are in higher levels of consciousness. I've met them. I know them well. I'm not... Um, I don't believe that that's a myth. Someone just said to me yesterday, oh, give it all up, that's a myth. No, that's not a myth. I've had my own experiences, which are genuine, of access to higher levels of consciousness. But what happened was that the same thing that we see in fundamentalist Muslims who are fighting jihad it's the psychology of fundamentalism. So they believe that nothing matters because they're going to go, you know, to the garden of vestal virgins. 
it's about it's the psychology of fundamentalism that I think is the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a kind of fundamentalism that happened in these spiritual communities as we saw in that film about Rajneesh, as we saw in our TM community, as we saw, as I've seen in other communities I've participated in. And that fundamentalism, um, we, ident- we unconsciously identify with the dogma, with the beliefs, and we lose our own capacity to think for ourselves. Very good. We lose our capacity to doubt to think critically. We lose our capacity to act on our own behalf. You know, it took me years to leave the movement because I knew what would happen when I left. And it did happen. Nobody would speak to me. I lost all my friends. Mm. Not, not, Phil, not, Phil, not Phil and I. You didn't lose we were me, leading. Connie. Come on. Phil and I were the only people each other would talk to for a long time. That's why we're doing this, yeah. No, no, no. Hey. Yeah, uh, not to. Uh, this is absolutely so the case. We didn't you had many people that. have that experience. You yeah. know, we didn't see the TM community as a cult, but it had cult-like qualities to it. Mm-hmm. Cult mm-hmm. Sense that everyone was thinking the same. Mm-hmm. Everyone was having the same dream, the same vision. Everyone was behaving in similar ways. Right. Everybody was even dressing in similar ways. <laughs> right. right? So it had cult-like qualities. And again, let's hold the tension of the complexity here. There were really beautiful, incredible, wise teachings that we were given. And at the same time, it became Mm cult-like. And most of these communities do. Yeah. I don't know any exceptions. There's right. always cult-like yeah, elements, and always, yeah. even, in, even in the healthiest spiritual yeah. community. Phil, we have Connie, time, we have time the, for one more question. Go ahead, yeah. Okay, I just want to ask, Connie, briefly, <laughs> tell us about the book you're working on now, Meeting the Shadow of Age, something relevant to some of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I thought after... I wrote Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, which is all about what we're talking about here, and I really worked to try to understand these issues. I thought I was, that that was the last book. But as I started to approach 70, I heard this voice. And, you know, as I, as I was telling you, I'm kind of trained to listen to these inner voices. And I heard this voice say, you need an initiation. And I didn't know what that was about, and I started to imagine that it was about becoming an elder. And I uh, began to do research, which is just my way, and I discovered this community called Saging, which arose out of a book called From Aging to Saging by Rabbi Zalman Schachter. And there's a whole kind of community of people who are looking at the inner work of aging. Mm. And it was very appealing to me because you can do it at your own level of development. It's not dogmatic. It's just a framework for really exploring the inner work of late life. And then I started to realize that nobody was looking at these issues from the point of view of the shadow. Very good. How does a shadow sabotage 
our aging, our process of consciously aging. How do we resist? How do we deny? What's the unconscious kind of image, the images that we're carrying of old age? How are they affecting us? How are they affecting our feelings about going into our 70s? So this is, so then I realized there was another book to do. Very good. We wish you luck with it. And when you're finished and it's published, we'll have you back on to talk about it. And hopefully we won't be uh, too aged at that (laughs) time. We'll be ripe. We'll be ripe, exactly. (laughs) We will be ripe, and we will be elders in the best sense of the word. Um, Connie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both. Big hug. Big hug. Okay, take good care.